Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. This is Chris. Hey, really hope that you had a great Christmas with friends and family, whether it was simple or you had a ton of family, whatever your Christmas looked like, we really hope that you're blessed and you got to remember Jesus' birth together. We are back with another great episode for you from our 2022 breakout sessions. As we are rolling into 23, we are wrapping up all of our breakout sessions. Today, we have Paul Hugobart. He's talking about what it looks like to really shift your church culture into a disciple-making culture that really looks at disciple-making, is intentional about it. It's not just a study you go through, but it's more of a lifestyle shift for your church culture. Let's go ahead and hear Paul's wisdom and insight on how he did that at his church and how it's taken a long time to move from an attractional model to a disciple-making model. All right, uh, so so you're here because uh, you want to hear about five uh, five principles or five reasons and eight principles um, that relate to disciple making in the North American church. And really, five reasons is just five reasons why the North American church ought to embrace disciple making movement principles. And then we'll talk about eight principles. Now, I want to give you just a quick introduction to myself. My name is Paul Hubbard, uh, the lead minister of the Grace Chapel Church in north, uh, just north of Atlanta. Uh, I've been there for roughly seven, seven and a half years at this point in time. And we have been six years in trying to make a transition to not being just an attractional church. And I'll talk a bit about that in a minute and so that we can get the definition out there so there's not confusion about that. Um, trying to not just be a, an attractional church, but also to be a disciple-making church. So bringing disciple-making movement principles into the attractional church so that we could be faithful in living out the mission of Jesus Christ. Instead of just hoping that people come to us, we actually want to be faithful in going to them, uh, making disciples as we go. I work with uh, with Renew. Uh, I lead a project of roughly 25 churches in North America that have come together to try to live this out. And so we're calling it a disciple-making movement incubator or a pioneer group. If you're familiar with the uh, the bell curve as it relates for relates to innovation adoption, uh, what we know behaviorally, observ- observationally, um, is is when something new comes about. It normally is a small group of people that adopt that new thing and start doing that new thing. Now, we know that the new thing we're talking about is really an old thing. It is, as Jim was talking about, it's the methods of Jesus. It's disciple-making the way he did, relational disciple-making. But it's going to seem new to some of us. In fact, as we try to start bringing some of these principles into uh, to Grace Chapel, where I was, some of these things seem so truly foreign to some of our folks that, uh, that it did really feel like it was something entirely new. Okay, so bringing these into a legacy existing church. But that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to embrace a hybrid model. How can we be both attractional, but truly embrace disciple making as well? And I'll explain, I think, how that, uh, how that works as we go. All right, so the reason I'm doing this is because I wrote a couple of articles for discipleship.org um, over the last couple of years. Uh, and several of them gained some traction, including this one that has been um, I think the, the number one viewed article since last March. Um, so what I said, what I mean by that is just to say that this is resonating with people. The title of this article was five reasons to begin a disciple making movement in the attractional church. So this is connecting with people, especially that connect with discipleship.org. What I mean by attractional is this, is that the main focus and most of the energy is directed toward come and see. So I just want you to think about your church for for just a minute. What do you invest most of your time and energy into? Now, in most attractional churches, especially the ones that are very attractive, they spend an awful lot of time getting ready for what? 
Sunday morning. It's all about the weekend. Now, again, there was a time where I think that worked. And so I don't want to be overly critical of this model of church for a time anyway, within a given culture, within the North American context. There are a lot of people that have come to faith by entering into the church experience through the Sunday morning worship service. There are a lot of people that have, but our culture is shifting. And so I think where a lot of people have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and with his church through the Sunday morning worship gathering, I don't think this is going to be the case nearly as much as it has been. Uh, I've had people say, I don't like you saying that, but I'm only repeating research and it's Barna research to say that we are radically or rapidly becoming post-Christian here in the United States, which is just to mean that we used to be Christian and we used to be able to assume a Christian context, but we can no longer assume that Christian context. In fact, the reality of it is if you, uh, if you look at the way that philosophy, the, the accepted philosophies or dominant philosophies have progressed over the last three to five decades, you can see that we actually started becoming post-Christian probably 40 years ago or so. We just didn't recognize it and we didn't acknowledge it. Okay, so attractional is just basically to say this. The main focus and most of the energy is directed toward come and see. We see this in, in the, you know, in the megachurch movements. Uh, there's so much energy, so many staff even hired around getting people to the weekend gathering because we believe that that is our best entry point. In fact, we used to say, in fact, it was in our model at, at Grace Chapel where I am, that Sunday morning is our main entry point into life, into body life at Grace Chapel. It's our main entry point. Now we acknowledge that it's just one on-ramp into the discipleship process. It's one of the ways that you can begin to follow Jesus, begin to be changed by Jesus, borrowing from the real life uh, ministry guys. Um, And one of the ways that you can become committed to Jesus, to following the mission of Jesus, but it's only one way. And it may no longer be the dominant pathway for most people who will come to know Jesus in North America, okay? So attractional, main focus of the energy is directed toward come and see. Disciple making, main focus and most of the energy is directed to this, go and be. Okay, so that's an easy way of remembering it. We've got come and see, and then we've got go and be. Now, if we're honest, which one of those did Jesus actually call us to? Right. I mean, there, there, there was a time where Jesus said, come and see. So at the very beginning of his ministry, when he was actually inviting Nathaniel to come and see so that he could verify that he was actually worth being followed. But that's the only time that we actually see Jesus say, come and see. Beyond that, it's go and be, whether he sent out the 70, the 12, whether he sent out all of us at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, it's go and be, go and make disciples. So here's the question, however, that we've been wrestling with, uh, both in this incubator and certainly with our thinking where I lead and where others are leading as well, is this question, can we be both come and see and go and be? Can we be that? In other words, can we be a hybrid in a sense? Um, there, there's one guy in, in the, in, that, that thinks along these lines and he talks about actually a, a hybrid vehicle. And so you've got both a gas engine and an electric engine in one car, but they're both going to the same direction, propelling the same vehicle. Uh, the same drivers are in place, but you've got two different engines powering that vehicle. That's maybe that's one way of looking at it. So can we be both come and see and go and be so. I want to say yes to that, and I actually want to give you five reasons why that should be true about the North American church. One, real quickly before we get into this, um, if I were to walk into your church and I, and I were to tell you, hey, listen, every, everything needs to change and everything needs to change today, how do you think most of your leadership leaderships would react? Not particularly well, right? 
But if I were to walk into your church and I were to say, hey, listen, a lot of what you've been doing is good and you should keep doing it, but there's more. How do you think your leadership might react? A little bit more positively, right? And so we're not trying to scrap everything. We're actually trying to bring disciple-making movement principles into the attractional church. So here are five reasons why we must do this, okay? So this is, you can actually go, this is a QR code that'll take you to that article if you want to read that article later, just as a good reminder of what we've been talking about. So first, we've got to recognize that our churches are full of church members, but not necessarily disciples of Jesus. Jim said this just a few minutes ago. We've got to recognize that we've actually specialized in making church members and not disciples of Jesus. When we've told them that the Sunday morning gathering was the main thing, and that's the one thing they need to do to continue to be faithful, what have we made? Well, people who say, I can do whatever I want to do throughout the rest of my life and throughout the week, but if I come to Sunday morning, then I'm still walking faithfully to Jesus. And so we've given them the wrong target entirely. We've said it's Sunday morning attendance or faithfulness to gatherings when we all come together. And we've done a good job of making church members, but not necessarily disciples of Jesus. Here's how I like to illustrate this. There's a time where a young guy came to Jesus. He was wealthy. And he has this really good moral, ethical conversation with Jesus and is even able to say to Jesus, maybe even with a straight face, I don't know. I can't imagine doing that myself. But yes, I've kept all of these commandments since I was young. And Jesus says, but there's one thing you're lacking. If you want to follow me and be my disciple, you're going to have to go and get rid of these things that are holding you back from following me. In your case, it's all of your possessions. Now, most of us are uncomfortable with that story for a number of different reasons. I'll tell you why I'm uncomfortable with that story. Because a few years ago, that was my ideal church member. He's moral, he's ethical, and he's wealthy. And he's probably willing to give some of that money to the work of the church. Maybe a lot of that money. But to sell everything so that he can come follow Jesus is a whole different ballgame. And so I think we have a whole lot of people, and we've actually said we'd love to have some of those young rich guys in our church who are moral and ethical and have lots of money. We love those folks. But Jesus actually turned that guy away, and Jesus was sad about it. But he turned him away because he said, I'm looking for people who will be followers. And so we've set the wrong target. Okay, so why do we need to bring disciple-making movement principles into the North American church because we've had the wrong, the wrong target and we need to rediscover what the right target is and it's to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, the second one is this. If you have spent any time around uh, disciple-making movements, you've probably become familiar with this term, persons of peace. How many of you are familiar with this idea of person of peace? We're just talking about somebody that ends up being a gateway. They're receptive somehow. I heard the story the other day about uh, a friend of mine. He's, he's engaging with, uh, with our group of our, our DMM incubator. And he, uh, he was sharing this story with me about how they'd been praying. They'd been praying, God, give us some inroads into our community. And several of them had impressed upon them the same thought. There's this apartment complex over here. We need to go connect with these folks. So they walked over and they, uh, they, uh, they entered into a conversation with the, uh, the apartment complex manager. And she was very standoffish to them at first. And bit by bit, they started to explain to her what they were wanting to do. To come and invest in that community, pray over that community, prayer walks, figuring out what needs people in that community have. And slowly by slowly, she became receptive And by the end of the conversation, she said, you know what, whatever you guys want to do over here, I will help you do it. We need that kind of help in this community. Now, I don't know if she's saying I'm ready to be a Christ follower, but she's saying I will be your gateway and your avenue to these people 
so that you may be able to establish a connection here. That's the idea of a person of peace. Now, here's what I see about our church folks as well. We have a lot of receptive folks who are willing to come every Sunday morning and hear the gospel message who may be conduits to a much larger community. Now, many of them may not be disciples of Jesus yet, really fully. I mean, they're they're church members, they're attending, they're here, but they could also be potential conduits to a community. We we drew some potential gen maps up yesterday. We've done this in in our church context where we'll draw the gen maps after they're happening, where we're basically saying, okay, so you discipled this person. What happened when you discipled them? Well, they went and discipled this person and this person who didn't disciple this person. What we were doing yesterday was dreaming the other way around and we were just having conversations with each other in this meeting where we're dreaming forward about the context and the relationships that we already have and what God could do through those relationships if the Holy Spirit moved and disciple making was what happened. We have a lot of people who if we sat down and did that with and talked to them about the relationships they already have, they might be persons of peace or they might actually become disciple makers themselves. And these folks are present in our churches. Here's the truth about this one too. The attractional church is an abundance of resources to contribute to the mission. I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about people, talents, abilities, all these things. Okay, if, we, if we were just to abandon the attractional church or the legacy church or the prevailing church and decide we just needed to do something new, we'd be leaving all these folks and all these resources and all of their talents behind, but God wants to use their talents. We're going to move quickly on these here. This one, I think we've all got to know this, and this is true. I've been at the place several times where I've wanted to walk away from the prevailing church model in North America and just do something different, start something new. But this brings me back over and over again. I know that God cares about the people who are members of the prevailing church, of the attractional church. And this last one too, some may be called to launch a new thing, but others will be called like I have. And this has happened to me several times through prayer and fasting. I've had these seasons where I'm asking God, is this still where you want me to be? Is this still where you want me to be? And over and over again, he said, yes, these are the people I've called you to. If I want you to go somewhere else, I'll let you know. But these are the people I've called you to. So others will be called like I have to serve the prevailing church and to work diligently to establish a disciple-making culture within the churches we currently serve as opposed to going and doing a new thing. Now, that's not for everybody. Some people will be called to go do a new thing. And if God calls you to go do a new thing, go do that new thing. But church leaders, if God calls you to invest where you currently are, and do the very difficult work of transitioning a culture Bit by bit, step by step, we're six years into this thing and we're, we're still not there yet, but we're making big progress. Then do that thing that God is calling you to do. All right, the second article, and this is where we're kind of synthesizing these two, so we'll keep moving through this as quickly as we can, is another article called A Principled Approach. Um, and this was also published on discipleship.org. Again, the QR code should pull that up for you. Um, if not, we'll figure out how to get you, uh, figure out how to get you to that article. Um, this is now, this is work where we have been engaging through renew.org in partnership with discipleship.org and team expansion. Um, some others as well with uh, a number of DMM leaders across the globe, talking about guys like Shadonke Johnson, who you saw today, uh, Josh Howard in India. Uh, We've been talking with Harry Brown, who's with New Generations, Curtis Sargent, who used to be connected with Ying Kai, who's now based here stateside. So we've been engaging with these guys for the last three, four years, trying to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. So understanding the why behind the what. 
Our belief is that we need to come back to some of the first principles and then allow God to slowly change the set, the settings that we are, are part of just maybe by a natural process instead of trying to maybe download a new operating system right away as it is, if that makes sense. Okay. So what, what a lot of folks have tried to do, let me give you an example. So early on when we decided we wanted to do the disciple making thing and do a better job with it, what we did is we went out and we said, Hey, these guys are using this thing called DBS. We should use it too. And it worked kind of here and there. DBS is a great tool. We saw some change, some shift in the way that people were behaving. We even saw people start to learn some things because of the practice. But what we realized is that we hadn't truly changed the heart and we certainly didn't shift the culture because we were just doing a new thing and we didn't actually know why we were doing that new thing. I mean, we as a leaders had a heart for doing something different and seeing our people doing something different. All they had was a new tool and a new behavior that only lasted for many of them for a short time. It was a new way of studying the Bible. And in fact, here's what happened with DBS or even the three thirds method when we first brought this on board is we had people go and do this thing and get bored on this thing pretty quick because it looks pretty simple and very fairly simplistic, quite honestly, as you're working through it. They didn't understand that what we were trying to give them was a simple and effective and reproducible tool that would lead to the ability to turn around and go make disciples and that anybody could use this now to go make disciples. All they understood is you've given me a new way to study the Bible and I don't really get why I'm using this when I can go out and read it. I can read a Max Licato book and I'm going to enjoy that a whole lot more, right? Or I can get on Right Now Media and I'll enjoy those studies a whole lot more. They didn't understand that this was to move them to become disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So we were missing the principles. The why behind the what was completely missing. So I want to walk you through eight principles real quick and hopefully we'll end up with a little bit of time to uh, chat and ask questions at the end. You've probably heard the statistic that says that the average first-time visitor to your church decides within seven minutes if they're not coming back. So what are they encountering in those seven minutes that has the potential to make or break their experience? I'm Abby Barris, designer and ministry veteran, and I would love to help you make those seven minutes as effective as possible. You can find me at abbybarrisinteriors.com or at churchdesignhelp.com. To learn more about how I can help you create strategic spaces that support your processes, communicate your values, and make space for everyone. These first two principles, it all hangs on these. If these are not present, the rest of it really, frankly, doesn't matter. We're just, again, we're just doing a new thing. We haven't changed the heart. Okay, so these first two principles, um, we'll talk about these more. If you guys are going to hang around, any of you guys that hang around for the National Forum, Shadanke and I will be talking through principle one and principle two together as part of the renewed breakouts in the National Forum on, on the main stage on Thursday, Thursday morning and Thursday afternoon. Okay, so here are the principles. First principle, what we see in the DMM is what we need here. There's a radical dependence upon the Holy Spirit witnessed through in-depth fasting and prayer that empowers the mission. So there's this radical reliance upon the Holy Spirit, which is frankly missing in most of our churches. Let me tell you what A.W. Tozer said about this probably 50 years ago. He said, in the North American church, if you were to take away the Holy Spirit, 90% of what happens today would continue to happen and nobody would know the difference. In the first century church, if you were to take away the Holy Spirit, 90% of what happened would cease to exist right away and everyone would know the difference. And the question we have to wrestle with within our North American context is what kind of people want to be? 
do we want to be? What have we radically relied upon? What have we been radically dependent upon? The best communicators, the best worship teams, the most talented and gifted people, the best looking folks, the what? I mean, we've put them on a stage and we've said, come, come see these folks. I mean, that's what we've been mostly radically dependent upon, our strategies, our wisdom, but not necessarily the Holy Spirit. And just because those things are present certainly doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is present. In fact, the reality is when we rely on those things, it may mean that we are excluding the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the way that we've been saying this is that the people of God need to become radically dependent upon the presence of God for the work of God. That's what we need in the North American church. And if this isn't present, the rest of what we talk about doesn't matter. So we need to return to a dependence upon the, the Holy Spirit and the presence of God and the work of God in a way that we haven't seen most of us in, in our generations. And, and many of us that are restoration movement connected, there's a reason why we haven't experienced that. I mean, we began with a skepticism of the Holy Spirit and the supernatural. And there are a lot of great things about the restoration movement we need to continue to embrace. But there are some things about the restoration movement we need to, we need to question a little bit, and that's one of them. We must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And it must manifest itself through times of in-depth fasting and prayer. We pray, we fast because we want to hear the voice of God. We want to receive direction from God. We want to be empowered by God. We want to humble ourselves before God and admit that unless he moves and unless we're moving with him, We're probably moving in the wrong direction. Okay? So the people of God are radically dependent upon the presence of God for the work of God. The next one is this. Scripture is the curriculum. I mean, it's as simple as that. Scripture is the curriculum. We allow the word of God to take its proper place. Not not our wisdom, not even necessarily always our thinking about the word of God. And I'm not going to say that. I mean, there aren't times for Bible classes and deep theological discussions. There absolutely are. But when we're talking about disciple making, it's the power of the word of God. It's the word of God that doesn't return null and void that we need to invest in, that we need to give ourselves over to. That's why tools like uh, Discovery Bible Study and Three Thirds are so powerful in this. And here's one of the things that they have that we don't have typically in our North American context. Why, why do we study scripture in North America typically? Knowledge. Knowledge. Man, everybody, same word. We want, we want an informational download, right? We want to gain knowledge. But in DMMs, why do they study scripture? Because they want to, they're asking the question, how can I be faithful to what I've just learned? And who should I what? Who should I share what I've just learned with? So we've got these tools where when scripture is the curriculum baked into them are the ideas of obedience and faithfulness. And we need some obedience based discipleship here in the North American context. There's no doubt about that. So we're asking, how can I be faithful? So how can we be the people of God? And then immediately we start to move to becoming the missional people of God as we're starting to wonder, how can I share this or who could I share this with? And we're engaging with some level of accountability. The way we like to think about it at Grace Chapel is this idea of editability. Uh, sometimes accountability has uh, maybe 
Uh, there's a little bit of a negative framework around accountability in some of our movements. There's no doubt about that. But editability, you can speak into my life. I want you to be able to edit my life. I want you in my life in that way. Speak into my life. Challenge me. Yes, hold me accountable in that in that regard. Okay. So again, if these first two aren't in place, the rest of what we talk about doesn't matter. If it's not the spirit of God and the word of God, then we're not going to get the people of God. We're going to get something else. We're going to get our rendition, our spinoff of the people of God, but it won't be the people of God. Okay. The, the third one is this. The mission is clear all the time. All the time. This means there's clear communication at all levels as it surrounds the mission. This is one of the things that we've been wrestling with within our context uh, over the last several months because we're realizing that our, our communication is not clear across all levels. Matt and I were talking about this yesterday, actually. You know, when you walk into Grace Chapel and you have Grace Chapel 101, GC 101, we are not communicating at, GC, at the GC 101 level in a way that we are communicating in, in other places. We're not unapologetically saying this is who we are. We're a people on mission. And so if you're joining this community, it's to be a people on mission. That's what we want for you. That's what God wants for you. We're going to be a people on mission. So it means our communication is clear all across the board at all levels. It means that we are communicating to our kids and our teens that this is, this is what it's about. It means we're communicating on Sunday morning. It means that it leads in staff meetings. It means that it leads in elder meetings. The mission is clear all the time. It leads. Okay. So we are both great commandment and great commission people is the way I like to think about that. So we're fully great commands people. We, we love God. We love others, but it's because of our love for God and our love for others that we're moved into response to the world around us. Right. So we, we love God. So we want to, we want to be like God. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. We love those around us. And so we want them to know God. So the mission is clear all the time. The next one, and this is really important. Disciple making is the underlying identity of the church. Now you might look at this and you say, okay, I get that. Um, let, let me ask you a question. And, and, and actually, if I walked into your church context, you might ask me, how, how would I know if disciple making is actually the underlying identity of your church? And, and here's how I would know. Tell me, tell me what you're planning. Talk, talk to me about your strategy and talk to me about how you spend your budget. I mean, this works all the way down to what we plan, how we plan, what we're planning for and how we spend the money that we have. This is about where our priorities lie. So disciple making is the underlying cultural identity. It's not just what we talk about, but it's what we invest our money in. It's what we're investing our time in. It's, it's what we're strategizing about, what we're dreaming about. It's what we're praying about when we come together. When we come together for, for staff meetings at Grace Chapel at this point in time, we, we try to begin with a time of prayer that centers on the mission of Jesus as opposed to what we used to do. Debriefs and let's talk about how Sunday morning went. Was it great? Did we win? Did we lose? Where do we need to be better? All these things. We just come to God and we ask him, God, whatever we did, we hope you use it. And Father, if we said the right things or the wrong things, or if we messed up in one plate, we hope you'll use it. And God, as we're looking forward, we just hope you'll use our efforts and what we're doing. We, we hope you use this time as we converse, as we, as we talk with each other, as we plan, as we think ahead to things. God, we just want you to use this time. And so it's changed the tenor and tone of our staff meetings entirely as well. We're not getting together and just saying, okay, we got a big event coming up. What can we do? How can we make it the best it can possibly be? 
We're saying, God, how, how can this be used to make disciples? And God, how can you lead us forward? And how can we be surrendered before you as we go? So disciple making is the underlying cultural identity of the church. This one, there's been some pushback to this, but I, I think there's, there's a good point in here. Is that leaders and staff primarily are coaching, making and coaching disciple makers. If we're looking to see movement, this is important. This is the same thing with, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Todd Wilson uh, just uh, just yesterday, and he was talking about most churches, when churches plant another church, that's the end of the replication at that point in time. So there's no replication beyond that. That's true also in disciple making. So when we when we started thinking this way at Grace Chapel, what happened is we, we again, we had that first realization that we've been really good at making church members, not so good at making disciples of Jesus. So we changed the target. We said, OK, the target is discipleship. We've been wrong. We've been wrong. It's not church membership. It's discipleship. Then a couple of years later came the recognition that it's not just discipleship, it's disciple making. And then about a year later came the recognition that it's not just disciple making, it's making disciple makers. That's what we need to be about is making disciple makers. Now, there are some people that are probably going to become disciples, but may not go to that place where they make disciples. I don't know that that seems to happen. That seems to be a natural tendency. But the reality is we need to be spending our time as leaders and staff focused on this, on making disciple makers. If you go and talk to some guys in India who are doing the DMM thing, um, they they get pretty ruthless about this. Honestly, who will I invest my time in? The reality is they've only got so much time and they've got this incredible response that's happening in India. And so they're looking for these people and they've actually said, okay, here are these five levels of disciple makers. And there are some guys who say, my time is so precious. I'm only investing in that top level of disciple maker. The guys who are immediately going and taking this and doing this and looking to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And I don't know if we need to be that ruthless. Uh, we may have a little bit more, a little bit less opportunity in that way. And so we may, we may be able to say, okay, look, we're not going to be that ruthless, but we do need to have this, the right target that we are looking to make disciple makers instead of just disciples. You'll see why that's important in just a minute as well. And one of the things we find as we've engaged with these uh, DMMs is that constantly stories of disciple making abound. You hear this all the time, but it's not just that the stories of disciple making abound because that could be one thing to say, okay, there are those stories. The question is, what are they doing with those stories? And they're constantly sharing those stories. Stories help to build culture. That's the idea, Abraham Heschel, words, words build worlds, worlds, and the stories that you share go to build your culture. And so um, the way that we started moving the ball forward on this at Grace Chapel was we, we got a group of pioneers together. Again, if we're, we're not just thinking about pioneer churches, we're thinking within our own church. Can we find those disciple-making pioneers? Can we see stories emerge out of those? Can we start to share and celebrate those stories as they happen? Do we see them happening with repeated frequency? Are we sharing them and celebrating the way we ought to? Are people responding them to those stories the way that we hope they would? Is it actually shifting the needle, moving, turning the dial on the culture that we're hoping to see established? That is a disciple-making culture. So stories are a very, very powerful tool, sharing those stories. And there should be an abundance of stories as you start to see, um, as you see the, the needle shift. This is also big too. Disciple-making expectations are high. When, when you talk with DMM guys, they are constantly communicating this to those they lead. They're making it plain that they expect for this to happen. I mean, there, there are expectations behind it. It's not a hope. 
We expect that disciples will turn around and make disciples and we expect that we will have stories to share. And so we expect that a high percentage of our people will say yes to making disciples and that that percentage will continue to grow. And as it does, the the expectations will only increase. So this is kind of, you know, Jim Collins idea when the flywheel starts to spin you start to see another culture developed. Uh, the, the tipping point Malcolm, Gladlo, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell would say is roughly at 16%. If you get 16% of your people really doing this, you'll start to see culture shift and you'll start to see the expectations change. We walked through a period uh, at Grace Chapel where the disciple-making expectations were not all that high because we seemed to be failing. We seemed to be struggling. Right. So so we were trying to change culture. And at one point in time, there was these high expectations and then reality set in. And then slowly we started to climb out of that plateau as the story started to be told. Now we start to, now we're starting to see not expectations just because of conversation, but expectations because of reality, because of what we actually see happening. That's when you know it's real. When the expectations are high, not just because you've been casting casting a vision, but when the expectations are high because there are stories to share over and over. And we see that in DMMs. That needs to be true about us as well. And then multiplication prevails at every level. Now, you'd say that might be super intuitive, and I agree with you. It is kind of intuitive, but I want to add just a little bit to that. So when we're talking about multiplication prevailing at every level, first we're talking about this. Multiplication happens at the level of disciples making disciples who make disciples. Multiplication is then going to happen at a group level as disciples are gathering together. Multiplication may happen at the service level. You may expand services. You may expand locations. You likely will plant churches. So multiplication is happening at every level. But what we see in in DMMs that is actually different from what we see in North American multiplication is this. In DMMs, there tends to be an open-handed posture to multiplication. That says we trust God to go do through these people what we've been putting in these people, the investment we've been making, the training that we put in them. We trust God to go and do an amazing thing through them. So there's an open handedness. What we've seen in our North American model, which is why I believe what Todd, Todd was talking about, that we, we don't see replication. It, it tends to die after the first generation of a church plant. Churches who were planted don't plant churches, in other words. We, we're a little nervous of, of what might happen if we're not in control at some point in time. And I see this among our leaders as we've started having conversations about what's next. This desire to want to make sure that everything goes right and that we oversee all of it and that, that we're kind of, you know, we're, we're in charge of it. When the reality is, and just as Jim said, whose church is it? It's not my church. It's his church. And so what we want to do is we want to get people to the point where they rally around radical dependence upon the presence of God for the work of God and where they're submitting to the word of God so that they can truly be the people of God. And then we don't hold on to try to control things. We open up our hand and say, God, you take this and you go do with it what you want to do. And that is a big difference between the North American church and DMMs, even churches that are planting churches. We often do it with a model. You know, we've got a, we've got a local church that um, they won't plant a church until they get, I think, six or eight hundred people that are ready to go and make that church plant. And then it's going to look just like all the other churches within that group. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. In fact, a lot of good things have happened through that. But we've got a predetermined way that we're going to plant churches. And what we see the early church being about a whole lot more than planting is sending And sending is this open-handed approach that says, God, you go do through these people 
what your Holy Spirit wants to do through them. And if we never have a bit more control over it, God, we, we've done the best we can to coach and put your DNA in them. We're going to bless them. We're going to send them. And God, you lead it. You let it be what it's going to be. One way we can plant churches and we can see more churches. But I can tell you, if we do that, what we never will see is movement. Movement happens in an open-handed fashion, and that's the only way it can happen. Thanks for being with us again at the Real Life Theology Podcast, hosted by Renew. We're going to be back on Thursday with another episode. It's actually going to be the second part of Paul's talk. So if you enjoyed today's talk, the second part is a Q&A. I'm going to kind of narrate it and walk through his answers because I thought they were really good. And he provides just, just some extra rich content. So we're going to check that out together on Thursday. So make sure to join back in for that.